Hello and welcome to my first podcast. My name is Chris. I'll be your host of Who Knows. We're going to get right into it. Um, just found this article. Just going to read it, and that's what that's how this that's that's gonna ha- that's kind of gonna be how this podcast goes because uh, right now I only have thirty minutes. I'm using Anchor. Um, I only get to record thirty minutes at a time. So um, come along. Let's go. Let's just do this. Found an article. It's called Anarchism and Libertarianism, Two Sides of the Same Coin. Um, you'll hear me read, and then I'll put in my two cents every once in a while. You know, Who knows? But mostly we're just learning together. So uh, subheading, early anarchist thinkers blurred the line between socialists and capitalists. Libertarianism is the simple idea that each individual has rights that no other individual or group of them may violate. It assumes the liberty and autonomy of the individual premised on the natural equality of people before the law. The 19th century libertarian philosopher Herbert Spencer called this the law of equal freedom, arguing that every man has freedom to do what he wills, all that he wills, provided he infringes not the equal freedom of any other man. While libertarians ground their robust commitment to individual liberty in several different philosophical traditions, they generally subscribe to some form of this law of equal freedom. Satisfied that, in general, the only legitimate limit on the individual's freedom to act as the identical freedom of everyone else. Anarchism is the philosophical opposition to authority, social and political and economic, together with the correspondent belief that the state ought to be abolished, that is, that society could and should function without it. Anarchism is also deeply concerned with the liberty of the individual, her ability to order her life as she chooses. Anarchist writer and cartoonist Donald Raum says that anarchism, like libertarianism, hopes to create a society that widens the range of choices available to individuals. To that end, he argues, people must not be permitted to threaten one another with violence. Any social relationship in which one party dominates another by use of threats, explicit or tacit, real or delusory, restricts the choices of the dominated party. As Raum shows us here, anarchists have traditionally worried about domination and understand that it often manifests itself outside of politics proper. Social and economics... Social and economic instances of domination seem to abound. Situations in which some external power dominates the will of the individual, yet the coercive power of the state is apparently absent, though perhaps merely hidden. Today, those who self-identify as anarchists are likely to see the modern libertarian movement, which as an ideological phenomenon is closely associated with the United States, as inattentive to the realities of those social these social and economic forms of domination for them, the freedom free market libertarians advocate is the freedom of the capitalists to exploit genuine economic freedom means to the anarchist socialism, not capitalism. Indeed, even to say that anarchism and libertarianism are similar is to partially obscure the true relationship between the two. After all, historically, the terms themselves have been used as synonyms. The first people to call themselves libertarians were anarchists, in particular the French libertarian socialist Joseph de Jacques. It is strange, then, that contemporary political terminology should place libertarianism at the far reaches of the political right and anarchism at the far left. 
are the terms not both standing in for the same fundamental idea, the principled opposition to unjust exercises of authority over the individual? <sighs> the trouble, as we are beginning to see, arises out of economic questions. Specifically, the question of whether capitalism is the embodiment of freedom in economics or its negative. Anarchists tend to see capitalism as a system of abuse and exploitation, an unjust coercive system through which the property-owning ruling class steal from working people and monopolize wealth. Libertarians, on the other hand, are its diehard defenders, the radicals for capitalism. To borrow Ayn Rand's description of her objective, objectivist faithful, we will set aside at the present moment that the fact that Ayn Rand rather despised libertarians, despite the obvious similarity between her philosophy and theirs. So while both anarchism and libertarianism want a free society, they appear to call for diametrically opposed economic systems, socialism and capitalism respectively. Yet, as we shall see, this is an oversimplified explanation of what is, it turns out, a thorny subject. The modern libertarian movement overwhelmingly tends to define capitalism simply as a system of free competition and exchange, in which private owners order their own property and contractual agreements are strictly voluntary. Capitalism here is just another way of saying free market, but free market economics was not always capitalistic e economics. It is important to note here that mid-19th mid century defenders of laissez-faire, for example, Richard Cobden and John Bright in England, Charles Comte and Charles de Neuer in France did not believe that they were engaged in a defense of capitalism. An analysis using Google's Ngram viewer reveals a picture of which the careful study of history is already aware. The word capitalism was only very rarely used prior to the 20th century. Earlier in appearance were phrases like capitalistic system, which were employed to describe not the principled free market system championed by modern libertarians, but a system in which property owners were systematically advantaged by special legal treatment. The term for the individual holder of capital, capitalist, also long predates the ism form that, in the 20th century, became the ensign of the libertarian movement, such as the such as the semantic context in which both libertarianism and anarchism were born. This context must inform our discussion of the relationship between anarchism and libertarianism, in which discussion we should also include a consideration of liberalism. Anarchism may be understood as a creative synthesis, borrowing Paul McLaughlin's words of classical liberaliz liberalism's opposition to and critique of domination and socialism's opposition to and critique of exploitation. As classical political economy came in the industrial era's youth to be associated, correctly or not, with a bourgeois apology for monopoly and the exploitative treatments of, of workers, many ra radicals searched for justice in, balance, in a balancing of liberty and equality. The French anarchist Pierre-Joseph Proudhon was just one radical, a unique thinker whose work can help us better understand the historical intermingling of socialist, anarchist, liberal, and libertarian currents. The kinship connecting classical liberalism and early anarchism remains underappreciated, in part because the tag liberal is often applied as an epithet by contemporary radicals, including anarchists. David Goodway, who specializes in anarchist history, observes the truth in the remark that Proudhon was a liberal in proletarian clothing. Sharing with classical liberals, radical ones in particular, the ideal 
of a society based on contractual relationships between free and equal individuals. In this vision, at least, Proudhon was almost certainly influenced by Charles Comte and Charles de Neuer. Students of economist Jean-Baptiste say, and publishers of the radical liberal journal Le Censure, later Le Censure European, their liberalism is remarkable in its similarity to modern movement libertarianism. Libertarianism. Historian Annaline de Dijin, sorry, observes that the radical laissez-faire liberalism of Comte and de Neuer was developed as an alternative to both the Jacobins. Republicanism and the Royalists' aristocratic liberalism. The general admiration for the classical republics, so central of a feature, so central a feature of 18th century liberal thought, left Comte and de Neuer cold. They were concerned not with the architectural design of the ideal the ideal polity, but rather with limiting the power and role of its of the state itself, allowing the productive industrial spirit its freedom. Comte and de Neuer pioneered class theory, the supposedly exclusive domain of socialists and communists and in foreseeing a complete withering away of the state, skirted the edges of explicit anarchism. Still, the apparent rift on the subject of economics asserted itself even in these early decades of the 19th century. Proudhon was a socialist who arranged who arraigned private property and classical political economy as it had been presented to that point. He declared that property is theft, and rallied against the capitalist's right of increase, the right to a stream of income for which the idle proprietor gave up no equivalent in exchange. How can, we how can we reconcile such ideas with libertarianism as we know it? First, Proudhon's famous proclamation, property is theft, must be among the most widely misunderstood statements in political theory. Libertarians, for whom strong private property rights are so important, are apt to read it and conclude that Proudhon has nothing to contribute to contem contemporary libertarian theory. To draw this conclusion would be a mistake. Indeed, Proudhon's distinctive critique of political economy on the one hand and state socialism on the other hand made him enemies on all sides. To Marx, Proudhon was the par paradigmatic theorist of petty bourgeois socialism. This was the critique to which Benjamin Tucker's individualist anarchism, so deeply influenced by Proudhon's work, would be subjected again and again as Tucker's stature as a libertarian and socialist intellectual group. David McNally follows Marx in arguing that Proudhon's socialism regrettably reflected an uncritical adoption of the presumptions of bourgeois economics. If what is property was an attempt to turn political to turn political economies premises against its conclusions, then McNally argued Proudhon ultimately failed to adequate, adequately criticize those premises. He rather accepted them, reconciling socialism and market exchange. Arguably, then, Proudhon's project was a much was as much a defense of liberal principles as it was a plea for socialism and working class revolution. That it was, in fact, both that it was in fact both offers an important lesson for contemporary libertarians. Liberalism, socialism, and libertarianism are genetic, genealogically intertwined, not hermetically sealed, unconnected currents. 
It is impossible to develop a nuanced understanding of one without an appreciation for the others. Again, as McLaughlin argues, anarchism is, at least in part, an attempt to take seriously and account for the exploitative dimension of liberalism and the oppressive dimension of socialism. He argues that the anarchist left that would emerge in the following decades was only indirectly influenced by Proudhon, that Bakunin and others became its prime movers. If Proudhon assailed nascent industrial capitalism, its brutal subjection of those without property to the will of the people, then he was no less forceful in his denunciations of communism and state socialism. Proudhon argues that the doctrinaire author, authoritarian dictor, dictatorial governmental communist system is based on the principle that the individual is essentially subordinate to the collective, that from it alone he has his right and life that the citizen belongs to the state like a child to the family, that he is in its power and possession in Manu, and that he owes its he owes its submission and obedience in all things. In this passage, the student of anarchism hears echoes of Josiah Warren, often regarded as Proudhon's American counterpart. Warren is another early to mid-19th century libertarian that exceeds the capacities of today's left-right spectrum. Like Proudhon, he was sensitive to the social and political inequality involved in the subordination of the individual to any collective, machine, or, of Warren's favorite terms, combination. Warren's firsthand experience with the carefully blueprinted utopian projects of Robert Owen persuaded him that their embrace of the most fatal mistake had doomed all previous attempts at radical reformation. That mistake was the establishment of artificial combinations, empowered to direct the actions of the individual, to force surrender of the natural sovereignty of the individual. This is not to suggest that Warren believed individuals ought to live solitary lives, strictly independent from one another, relying on no one but themselves. Warren rather consistently celebrated community and cooperation. In Native American anarchism, Eunice Minette Schuster's notable study of individualist anarchism, she observes that for Warren, the freedom to differ was the basis of universal cooperation. He opposed only compelled connections, those that tend to obscure the lines of responsibility to breed incentive problems and conflicts of interest. <laughs> You guys, this coffee's really good. Um, <clears throat> Warren's economic theories and the practical experiments to which they led are extremely idiosyncratic. idiosyncratic. Unlike later socialists, Warren sought not to abolish the wages system, as it was often called in the 19th century anarchist writings, but to establish and ensure equitable exchange. Benjamin Tucker, a disciple of both Warren and Proudhon, would expand on this idea in his debates with his socialist and anarchist contemporaries. For Tucker, the payment of wages of the employee's sale of labor under contract with the employer was not problematic or inconsistent with his socialist opposition to monopoly privilege, at least not in and of itself. Why? Tucker writes, I thought that the fact that labor is not paid was the whole grievance. That one might choose to hire himself out for a wage was perfectly inoffensive to Tucker's individualist anarchism and its notions of economic justice. Instead, what bothered Tucker were the privileges that empowered the capitalistic class, as he called it, to lay claim to under, unearned wealth. Tucker believed that 
unadulterated free market competition, free of state-granted privileges, would yield conditions in which no seller could charge more, or at least much more, than the amount of his costs. Banks could not charge interest on loans. Landowners could not charge rent. Merchants could not make profits. All of these were usurious. Oh, excuse me. All of these were usurious, made possible only by various monopolies, which placed arbitrary limits on competition. Market competition then was treated as a practical way to Tucker, the only way to affect the dreams of the socialist movement. This was a, pred a prediction based on the idea that under perfectly free competition, the true source of economic value labor would fully assert itself. Tucker's anti-monopolist economic program calls to mind the work of another free market laborist. If Warren was Proudhon's American counterpart, then perhaps Thomas Hodgkin was his English analog. Hodgkin's famous distinction between private property as established by nature and private property as a socially destructive monopoly privilege created by the legislator, arming the landowner and the capitalist against the peasant and the artisan, bears an obvious resemblance to Proudhon's contrast of property with possession. It is remarkable, then, that the modern libertarian movement has tended to claim Hodgkin, insofar as it is aware of him, even as they reject Proudhon, apparently for the crime of being a socialist. Hodgkin was arguably no less a socialist, though, of course, not in either an anti-market or pro-state authoritarian sense. As historian and Hodgkin biographer David Stack observes, Hodgkin's thought defies any simple dichotomy between socialism and individualism. Whether socialist is a term that accurately describes Hodgkin remains the subject of a scholarly debate. Michel Prum, Michael, Michael Prum, calls him a Lockean anarchist. I need to look that guy up. And this may be the best, most accurate label for Hodgkin. A Lockean anarchist. Certainly the, Ricard the Ricardian socialist label first employed specifically to describe Hodgkin is today widely regarded as both inaccurate and inadequate as applied to him. Stack, for example, argues that the whole preoccupation with Hodgkin's theory of economic value, whether it derived, derived from Ricardo or Smith, to what extent it influenced Marx, produced an, a deficient examination of Hodgkin's project. Hodgkin, sharing still more with Proudhon, drew both praise and rancor from Rancor for Marx, who alternately lauded Hodgkin's outstanding contributions to English political economy and damned him for accepting all the economic preconditions of capitalist production as eternal forms. Indeed, that Hodgkin is known today is largely due to the ongoing discussion of his influence on Marx, whom Sidney and Beatrice Webb, founders of the London School of Economics, called Hodgkin's illustrious disciple. But rather than rejecting Hodgkin as a socialist, they have, as they have Proudhon, today's libertarian movement ought to extend its qualified embrace of Hodgkin to Proudhon. Ostensibly competing aspects of the anti-authoritarian tradition offer valuable insights, all of which belong to a thoroughgoing th theory of liberty. But both the left or socialist and right or capitalist traditions of libertarianism have tended to neglect one another at best and despise and despise one another at worst. Both see the other's claim to the titles of anarchists and libertarian as false.
premised on mistaken notions of freedom. They accordingly they accordingly emphasize different concert, conceptions of liberty. The left is the left its positive meaning, the right its meaning. The left its positive meaning, the right its meaning. A more interesting and useful approach, a reconciliatory Proudhonian one perhaps, would attempt to recognize and study the ways in which negative freedom opens the way to positive as an empirical matter. And free market libertarians have indeed attempted to show that broadening the space for the freedom to trade and compete, even marginally, has lifted millions out of the most abject poverty and squalor. Deirdre McCloskey's phrase, trade-tested betterment, comes to mind. Contemporary libertarian theorists such as Roderick Long have argued that the libertarians of the various schools ought to embrace one another as family. Differences notwithstanding, doing so would start a mutually edifying conversation that strengthens the theory of liberty and spurs our imaginations. Okay, well, that was pretty cool. Um, just uh, wanted to look that up and read it. So, um, I'm not sure. It might be illegality. I'm not really sure. I should be fine. I'm really just reading. Um, reading's not a crime, right? So, pretty interesting stuff there. Um, like I said, this is uh, my very first podcast. I might not have said that. I don't remember if I said that in the morning or in, in the beginning. I'm still drinking my coffee here. Um, so yeah, um, that's this pretty much what it's going to be. I'm just going to be finding stuff to read. Um, not going to waste too much of your time. Um, like it, share it, whatever, do whatever you want to do. I mean, constructive criticism, all that stuff is all good. Um, so yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, I'll see you next time.